Now, March was supposed to see the launch of Ireland's first ever satellite. It's ready to go, having been built and designed by a team out in UCD and will hopefully hit the skies this year. So, let's meet some of the team and let me explain. Let me explain with Sean Defoe, a News Talk original. The space immediately around Earth is becoming more and more filled with satellites as it becomes more viable for countries to send spacecraft up and for commercial ventures like Starlink to take off. And actually, that's becoming something of a problem with thousands of dead satellites in our orbit clogging up the place. You can listen to a bit more about that in our episode about space litter. Just give a scroll back in your feed. It was our 12th episode. And in today's podcast, I have been out to the Centre for Space Research at UCD where some really exciting developments are going on. And there, in the building, as I visited, was Ireland's first ever satellite soon to be blasted off into space. They've kept it behind closed glass where the likes of me can't contaminate it. But I sat down with some of the people behind Ireland's first satellite and the format this week, a little bit different to the usual podcast, a little bit longer as well because I think both of these gentlemen are fascinating and at the forefront of space tech in Ireland. So let them explain. I'm Dr. Ron Wallen, project manager here at AirSat-1. First of all, what is AirSat-1? AirSat-1 is Ireland's first spacecraft. It's a small satellite, about uh, 10 by 10 by 20 centimetres big, so really kind of a handheld spacecraft that you can have. And as I said, it's it's a first spacecraft. What is it going to do? Well, it's going to... Uh, on board has got some great UCD developments it's got some uh, technology in different areas um, and also experiments uh, so one of the experiments is called a gamma ray uh, detector GMOD is what we call it gamma ray module and um, that's going to detect some of the most energetic events of the universe um, it also has on board a material science experiments called EMOD for the company called MBIO um, that would that provided and helped UCD develop the coatings on board there it also has a control experiment on there, which means that it's able to point the spacecraft in different directions using a control algorithm that was developed here in UCD. And then also, last but definitely not least, because it's uh, one of the most uh, challenging developments we have because it's a mechanism and putting a mechanism in space is always always difficult. It's called the antenna deployment module, where we have actually designed, developed, tested, and made sure it definitely works. Uh, an antenna, uh, two antenna, in fact, a UHF and a VHF antenna. So there's a lot packed onto a small spacecraft. Now, we've just been upstairs here in UCD looking at the satellite. And I suppose a lot of people, when they think of satellites, they're going to think of, you know, Transformers and all these movies and these big, massive spy satellites. I know it's not always about size, but it does look right, <laughs> rather small. Yeah, we commonly get that uh, that experience because people are always looking at, say, I don't know, the, the Apollo program, the massive rockets that are involved there. Um, and then even just the weather satellites or Earth observation satellites, always they have historically been bigger. But the great thing about small satellites is that it really democratizes space exploration. So many more countries, so many more entities can get involved because it's smaller. And the way technology is going is that we can actually achieve so much more in such a smaller space. So it allows organizations like us, like UCD, that would never be able to do a spacecraft 25 years ago enables us and enables Ireland to come to the table and say well we're actually building spacecraft now so partly miniaturization and partly the advances there has really helped us but what's it's just so impressive what you can do with um, with a small satellite is this more the norm for what countries are doing now is it the sort of you know micro satellites rather than the the bigger ones it, 
there's a split. Uh, there's, there's always room for the big spacecraft, for the big historical missions, the big science, Earth observation, the, the uh, GPS, Galileo constellation ones. There's always going to be a need for them, for sure. Um, but if you want to, but they can take a long time. For example, European Space Agency big science missions can take 10, 15 years to get going. Um, if you want to get data quickly, if you want to get a, a service up there more quickly, you tend to go for the smaller satellites. So certainly they're a, a massively growing field. Um, they're projected, there's already thousands of satellites in orbit and you know, tens of thousands are projected for the future. And most of those will be in the small end. Because the great thing about that is that if you've got lots of small ones, if they break down, that's okay because we replace them with relatively cheap other small ones that go up there rather than having to replace big behemoth of uh, massive spacecraft. So, so yes, it's definitely growing more in the, in the small satellite market. And are they easy to either replace or also remove altogether? Because one of the other episodes we've done on Let Me Explain is about space junk that people can listen back to if they want to and all the satellites up there that are, are sort of dead and making it harder to get off the planet in the first place. Absolutely. It's something that we take seriously and, and certainly European Space Agency, NASA, all those uh, space organizations take very, very seriously. There is a, a I'm sure you touched on it on, on the previous podcast, there is a guideline from the United Nations of 25 years from end of mission before you have to dispose of it. So you must dispose of your spacecraft within 25 years of end of mission. Um, that's really key. Uh, and that applies differently if you're in low Earth orbit or you're in what's called a geostationary orbit where the telecommunication satellites are. So there are different needs at different places there. But for us, We've made sure that we're going into an orbit which is actually going to burn up and we've done the analysis and it's proven that we're going to burn up between five and seven years after uh, the start of mission. So we're going to be at that point. More and more people are obviously getting involved in the space race, more we're seeing the commercialization of it. So how is it that UCD became involved and it ended up being you guys who are going to end up launching our very first satellite? Well, there's a long tradition of space research in UCD, um, starting with astrophysics right to the 50s and 60s. Um, and certainly there's uh, some of the, the great work done here by Rain Hanlon and Sheila McBreen in the gamma ray detector and astrophysics and before them and Brian McBreen as well. Um, that, that long tradition of astrophysics really set the groundwork that was uh, able to be exploited after that for our program. And what, they led to, what that led to was the gamma ray detector, which is uh, really a great piece of miniaturization based on um, previous much bigger equipment that's been shrunk down into something that can fly here. So because we had that, and because we had some certainly smart people like the team that we've got, we're able to put those two together and able to, to, to put that spacecraft uh, up in orbit. So it came really from having the capability to build good advanced space science detectors. And from there, plus our colleagues in engineering with their uh, excellent history and control research, and from all of those elements, we were able to say, well, the next logical step is to put a spacecraft together from this. So it was really set by decades of uh, hard work, uh, putting science together, putting engineering together beforehand. So. And what is it you're hoping to get out of the satellite? Because obviously it is a, it much more on the research end. It's not into the communication side or anything like that. What are you hoping to, that in five years time, in 10 years time, this will have you know bettered the cause of? I mean, obviously there's the data that we'll have there and I can allow others to, to speak more around what that's going to tell us in terms of gamma ray, um, astrophysics, and then also the, the material science experiment. But really, from where I'm sitting in project side, um, it's the capability. It's like Ireland has never had end-to-end -end capability before for space systems. Um, this is the first time we're going to have that. From that, we'll be able to engage other projects, do other research projects that we wouldn't even have been able to get close to before in UCD. 
never mind the people that are coming out of this project with skills that can go into Irish industry and foreign industry, upskilled and able to do space, first class, uh, highest quality, highest product assurance space that we're able to do that. So the capability is something for me is what's the game changer for this project. What kind of money does it take to launch a satellite? Well, depends. Uh, like everything, it depends. Uh, how The costs for like satellite can depend on if it's big enough, it could be like say 20, 30,000 euros per kilogram for the big ones, for the very big ones. For small ones like a, like an airsat, it could be around, a, a, a European Space Agency is paying for it, but they typically be around 100, 200K for, for a satellite launch of our smaller size. But our membership of the European Space Agency, our friends in the Flyer Satellite Program, they're actually covering the cost of that. But we very successfully proposed in 2017 and um, to say, well, do we've got a, a satellite concept. Will you fly it for us? Because they had a program, which is Flyer Satellite Program. And because of that, and because we were successful in that proposal, they're able to cover the launch costs for that. So that's great. That's another benefit of our membership of the European Space Agency. And t- tell us a bit more about how that works, because you're not j- it's not just one rocket going up with Ireland satellite. There's a, a, a payload of a few different countries. How does that get decided? How do you get a spot in it? Is there a bit of politics goes on to try and fight your way in? How does it work? Yeah, there's a bit of a mix. I mean, it's it's a bit like a, a big night out with the team, really. You're gonna want, you want to share the costs around everything. So the more spacecraft you have on there, the cheaper cheaper it is for, for people to go up there. So that's good. Um, what you tend to have in these launches is that usually there's a, the most important satellite, the biggest one, the primary payload. They're really dictating the schedule and when things go and what orbit goes into, etc. But these days, you've got all this um, useful space around that spacecraft, which you can put deployers as we're coming out of a bit like a jack-in-the-box but you can put these deployers onto those elements uh, of the of the launch vehicle itself and from there you can fill all that extra space a bit like cramming in and um, cramming in students into a lecture hall you can fit loads of people in there loads of satellites in there and from that they can be deployed from there so you these days they're actually selling the space uh, or selling the room on the actual launch vehicle itself so you can get brokers that will fly whatever you want to fly in there as long as you can demonstrate that you've got sensible product assurance that there's no um that there's no risk to the other payloads the other satellites there so there are brokers that will essentially sell you space us we're going through the european space agency so they're looking after all that dealing with them um, the launch vehicle providers but plus them but you can do it and in fact if you want one yourself sean you you can go and send up parts of yourself up to space so you, you can get a broker to pay for it who needs a deposit for a house when I could launch a satellite and say, you know, only a PC that lasts forever then, so that's great. Um, something I had never thought about when it came to space, until you mentioned it to me about 20 minutes ago, is insurance. You need insurance to launch a satellite. Yes, you need insurance to launch a satellite, absolutely. Um, there's, uh, again, it goes back to the 60s and it goes back to the uh, the early days of, of space exploration. In there, there was always this concern that who's going to pay if something goes wrong? Um, and essentially what's called the Liability Convention was brought in with, with, as part of the Outer Space Treaty. And in there, it basically says, if your spacecraft causes a problem, be that on ground or in space, your country is liable to pay for it. And that, that's, that means various things. It's never actually been claimed on. That's never actually been needed to be claimed on for anything in space. Now, there was an issue um, with, a, a, again, Cold War era Soviet satellite that, that crashed, bringing down some... Um, some it had, I think, a, a radioactive thermal ice, isotope or generator, RTG, um, on board, 
And that radiation was spread all across rural parts of Canada and had to be cleaned up. And I think Canada eventually built the Soviet Union for that one. So that's kind of the history of why you need to, to, to cover it. But for us, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a liability there. And what we have to do is make sure that we've got uh, at least uh, full coverage for every year of the mission with insurance. So we've got to pay for insurance for every year of the mission. It's not the case for other countries. Other countries underwrite educational satellites, so we don't have that. They don't have that extra bill, and they can go to higher orbits, longer orbits, and they can spend more time in space and get a better return. But for us, we uh, uh, the way we uh, the agreement that we have um, with uh, Irish government is that we need to cover uh, ourselves with. Uh, with insurance that we hope in the future that that will change that there'll be legislation put in place part of that is from it comes from the fact that we're doing it for the first time i can understand the um the the needs to to have the liability covered i can totally understand that um but we hope in the future that that'll be brought into some sort of space legislation and that it'll be easier and to be less cost on us insurance wise to to go into space Something I really like about AirSat 1 that's been clear since coming here today and looking at so many of the components and so much of the design around the project has been done by Irish companies. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I, as it's not widely known, but there's over 90 companies in Ireland have had a contract with the European Space Agency. We do space. We do space very, very well. There's been some um, notable successes way back from even from the 80s, which are with their um, participation on the Giotto mission for ESA, which was a, like a, a stunning success for for Ireland all the way through to the, the to the launch of James Webb Space Telescope one of the Irish companies here called Realtra had a, like the, the video footage that you see of James Webb leaving the launch vehicle came down through an Irish company's uh, technology so all that's already happening it's there and we're doing it very very successfully um, and indeed on Eric we've had some excellent both from machining through to antennas through to uh, sensors uh, we've uh, they've all come from Irish companies here which is really really impressive so we're we've got so much capability and we're just delighted to be able to be a vehicle for Irish technology in space I presume the hope is that this is Ireland's first satellite but it will be by no means the last that's certainly the hope and again as I said the capability is here but to continue to feed and support research and industry in Ireland we need to keep that that skill level current and keep it high. So that means other projects. There'll be that building experiments to fly on other people's spacecraft. That's also possible. But then also to be able to fly um, our own second AirSat 2 or whatever we want, want to call it um, going on from there. So we already have concepts with plenty of ideas. Well, we just, you know, we just need to get this one out of the way and then we'll be on to those ones. Anything else you want to add? about it or we didn't touch on it um, I, feel bad, but. I don't think so um, maybe just uh, I, I always like to say just one thing just, uh, again what we've been really blessed with here is the capability of the young men and women on the team here uh, again a lot of the staffing is is postgraduate students um, and now and they've some of those have grown up and become postdocs and it's really impressive but the, the capability of the team is, is something that never ceases to impress me the ability the humility, the uh, the teamwork, it's just so impressive. I, I've got 20 years in, in the space industry, both UK uh, and Ireland, and uh, it's it's fair to say that I've never been uh, part of a team that's been so diligent, so capable, so it's just an honour to be with them. There have been quite a few members of the team over the last few years making lasting contributions to this project, and I caught up with one of them outside the satellite holding area who was able to give me some of the nerdier info about what it's going to do. 
Dr. David Murphy. I'm a physicist in the UCD Center for Space Research, and I'm the systems engineer for AirSat-1. Uh, right, so David, I'm going to ask you to explain very complicated things to me as though I was five, because that's about my mental capacity for things. But when we look here at AirSat-1, what, what is it all doing? It looks like sort of maybe two cubes stacked on top of each other and then a, a base plate at the bottom. What is all that stuff doing? So AirSat-1 is what's called a CubeSat. So a CubeSat is an idea that sort of came around in the late 90s, early 2000s, of putting a very, very small satellite that's built by students into space. So a CubeSat is 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. It's a cube. That makes up one unit. And then you can sort of multiply that if you want. So you can have two units or three units or six or even more. So AirSat-1 is a two-unit CubeSat. So what that means is that it's 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by roughly 20 centimeters high. So it's a lot smaller than most people think. Um, if you think of it sort of like it's kind of like a carton of milk or a shoebox. Like it's it's much smaller than most people would think. So you've got this sort of cuboid shape that's about the size of a, uh, you know, a carton of milk. Um, and then covering all sides of it, we've got solar panels. So we've got little solar cells that are powering the spacecraft. And then at either end of it, we have some things that we developed at UCD. So at one end of it, we've got EMOD. And this is an experiment that's um, a, a thermal management experiment. So we've got two types of coatings. We've got solar black and solar white. So that makes up this sort of weird sort of Battenberg uh, look on the top of it. So you've got like this checkerboard of white and black um, uh, panels. And then on the other end of it, we have um, our antenna deployment module. So what happens is there's these antennas that are inside the spacecraft when it's in the rocket. But after it leaves the rocket, these antennas sort of spring out. So they're released and they spring out. So we've got these sort of dangling antennas at one end of the satellite. Um, and then inside the satellite is where a lot of the technology is, right? So we've got all these computers, we've got radios, we've got batteries, they're all inside. But also inside, we've got this big gamma ray detector. So this is one of the, the main payloads that's on board AirSat-1, is the uh, GMOD, the gamma ray detector, um, that was developed here in the School of Physics at UCD. And, right, so I vaguely know what gamma rays are. Uh, why are we trying to detect them and what's important about that? So for us, we're trying to detect them because we, we have a history of research in gamma ray astronomy here in the group. So it's, it's been something that we've been interested in for a very, very long time. Um, and as part of that, we started developing um, gamma ray detectors, um, hopefully for um, as a building block for larger spacecraft. So we were going to put all these gamma ray detectors on big spacecraft. Um, and we're still hoping to do that, but we discovered that actually just one of these little building blocks, it's actually really useful by itself and it can do gamma ray science by itself. And we decided to put it on AirSat-1, not just to do the science, but also to put it in space and show, hey, look, it works in space. It's really, really good. And then that, you know, raises the sort of the acceptance of people to put it on the larger spacecraft. So it will become a building block of much bigger detectors on much bigger spacecraft in the future. So in part, proof of concept, but also doing experiments as well. And AirSat-1 will be conducting a number of experiments with one I found particularly cool, testing shielding for satellites with the tech developed in Ireland. So there's the um, the EMOD. This is the thermal coatings experiment that I mentioned, this sort of Battenberg or checkerboard um, effect that's on one end. And um, so this is using coatings that were flown on Solar Orbiter, 
which is an ESA mission that went really, really close to the sun. So the, the closest thing to the sun um, with a Irish coating on it, protecting the spacecraft. So, you know, if the spacecraft is the closest spacecraft to the sun and the coating is on the outside of the spacecraft, then it's an Irish coating that's the closest thing to the sun, which is very, very cool. Um, but we're putting that on AirSat 1 um, for the purposes of making measurements of that coating and seeing how well it performs. So although it did protect Solar Orbiter and it did a fantastic job of that, um, we're for the first time actually making measurements of how it will perform in space and how it might degrade over time. So with all these experiments, I mean, what kind of time frame are you looking at? You mentioned the solar panels are all along the outside. How long can they power AirSat 1? So the solar panels will eventually start to degrade and their performance won't be as good at the start as at the start of the life. Um, but that's a slow process. Um, so it's not expected to have any significant effect on the lifetime of AirSat 1. Which is expected to be roughly how long? So that's about five to seven years. Okay, right. So this is a sort of five to seven year project. And I suppose within that time, you're probably hoping to get more up there. Is that two or is that three or whatever we end up going? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've learned so much building AirSat 1. So, I mean, it's been six years in the making so far. Um, and I mean, that's six years directly on AirSat 1. Of course, there's going back, you know, decades, all the, the research that was done here and the experience that was built up. But for six years now, we've been working specifically on a spacecraft with the goal of getting it into orbit. And there's so much experience that you build up and there's so many ideas that just come out of building a spacecraft that you just, just you know, there's so much inspiration for the next one and the one after that. So we're taking a lot of what we've learned from AirSat 1, um, a lot of the technology that we developed, and we're, we're just thinking of bigger and better things. How much of the idea or the concept that you started with six years ago is the same? Because six years in this kind of technology is an eternity, and I imagine there was a lot of oh, this new thing has come out, we need to add that. Yeah, no, um, it's shockingly similar. Um, it has all the same parts, just maybe not in the same order, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, so the big thing that we changed from the start was we moved the antennas from one end to the other, and then we had to go back in and sort of look at, not just because of th those changes, but just out of the testing that we've done we've had to look at, okay, well, maybe we need to reinforce this part of the spacecraft um, and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, really, the the broad ideas that we started with, they're, they're all still there. We've just done a lot of development, a lot of engineering, a lot of testing in the meantime to sort of bring it to its final form. What is that kind of testing like? How much how, how do you put it through the rigors to know that when we launch this up into the vacuum space, it's going to be okay? Yeah, so... so We've got different sort of components on AirSat 1, right? So there's there's ones that we call COTS, that's commercial off the shelf. So these are stuff that we've bought in that has flown in space before. So we're quite confident in its capabilities. But, but the big thing about AirSat 1 is the stuff that we've built, the stuff that we designed from scratch and built ourselves. So before you even start testing the satellite, you want to test those individual parts. So say a GMOD or gamma ray detector, EMOD, um, our antenna deployment module, we would have built engineering models of all of those components, and then we, we test those individually. So we, we go to the CubeSat support facility, which is a facility that ESA have developed in Belgium. So we travel there, and they provide all these amazing um, facilities to us, um, and we shake them, first of all. So we're, we're trying to simulate the life cycle 
that these components are going to go through when they're on a spacecraft and going into space. So the first thing we do is we shake them really, really hard. Um, if they survive that, um, and, and amazingly, like all of our components have generally survived that, which is really good. Um, then we bake them. So it's like shake and bake. Um, after they come off the shaker, they go into what's called a thermal vacuum chamber. So we pump all the air out of it. It's like being in a vacuum of space. And then we heat it up, we cool it down, we heat it up, we cool it down. So we, we were trying to stress it thermally. And that's like when it's going around the earth and it's coming into sunlight and then it's going behind the earth and it's going into darkness, it's going to get these stresses. So that's a process that we've gone through for the individual components. When we were happy with those, we put them all into a spacecraft. Um, this is not the spacecraft that's going to space. It's a twin of it. Uh, it's called the engineering model. Um, and we do the same thing on the engineering model. So, so then, as a whole, the spacecraft is getting shook, and then it's getting um, baked. So it's going into the thermal vacuum chamber. When we're happy with that, we've we've shown that the design is good, that the design is capable, and um, we build our flight model. And then with the flight model, you do it all again. And um, so you don't stress the flight model quite as much as the engineering model, but it goes through the same processes: shake and then bake. So fairly fairly extensive. Tell me as well about how you're storing AirSat 1 here because we were in the room a few minutes ago and it's sort of, it does look like a proper lab that you might see in a movie with it behind this plexiglass and uh, and very careful not to get too many germs near it. Yeah, so um, it's in a clean room. Um, so air is pumped into the clean room, clean room through filters. So it's all filtered air that's going in and then that air sort of, it's a positive pressure inside, right? So the air is trying to get out through all the gaps, which means that dust can't go in through the gaps dust gets blown back out through the gaps so the air inside is clean and then if you're going in there you have to be sure not to bring in any dirt with you right so that means hair nets uh, beard masks um, like a lab coat shoe covers and now that we've got the spacecraft in the final configuration we're also really really careful not to get any volatile materials on it so that means even just breathing on it could be you could be depositing stuff that needs to be cleaned off and could potentially be very difficult to clean off. So the goal is, look, just don't get it on there in the first place, wear a mask. And of course, we're all used to wearing a mask at this point. So it's something that at one point might have seemed, you know, a bit different and a bit extraordinary. But yeah, I think it's kind of ordinary now. How difficult then is it going to be to transfer it from here to the launch site? Um, so that's an interesting process. What, what most people don't realize is that it... Um, it's carry-on luggage and the spacecraft is quite small it goes into a protective box which is around about the maximum size that an airline will allow you to take on board so so that's what we do and we take it on board and it goes in the overhead compartment and when airsat one launches the process will be that we will transfer it to um, Brno in the Czech Republic there's a company there that does launch integration so we're going to push AirSat 1 into the launch dispenser. So we'll be responsible for putting it into the dispenser. And that dispenser will then be shipped to um, French Guiana, to the launch site. And we'll be there to supervise the integration of the dispenser onto the rocket. Who draws the short straw of bringing it on board as carry-on? Ima- I would be terrified. Absolutely. Like, imagine someone goes and starts putting their duty-free on top of it. I- who gets that job? Uh, it's usually me. Uh, um, and yeah, it's led to some strange interactions where like I put it up into the overhead compartment and then, you know, like, oh, uh, do you mind swapping seats? My, my, my husband wants to sit there. It's like, look, I can't. I need to be watching that thing like a hawk. I can't leave this seat. 
Um, yeah, and then of course we have to get it through security at Dublin Airport, right? Which is interesting. Um, sometimes it goes through fine, and then sometimes they're like, what's this? Um, yeah, so that's led to some interesting interactions. I'd say, like, how many of them have believed you when you said, oh, it's Ireland's first satellite, by the way? Um, at first, none of them. Um, but we have, uh, you know, signed letters from um, the, the the school here. We have signed letters from the European Space Agency. So you know, when you when you pull out that European Space Agency headed letter, um, people take note and like, okay, this is something serious here. And yeah, I find that absolutely hilarious. Airport security is stressful enough without carrying a satellite worth hundreds of thousands of euro as well. You could never relax. Imagine setting that down at the Burger King in Terminal 1. I'd be absolutely terrified. I have to say, really, really enjoyed the recording this. It was cool to head out to UCD, and they're doing some great work there. Again, totally struck by just how much they've packed into such a small satellite. It was due to launch at the start of March. Unfortunately, though, some issues were run into during tests of the rocket, which was meant to bring it into space. So while they pour over those details... There is something of a delay before Ireland gets its first satellite into space. Hopefully not too long, though, and hopefully we will see it in 2023. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Sean Defoe presenting and producing with John Keogh as editor and Lachlan Hart on sound. I'll chat to you next week.